Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you being empowered with knowledge so you can save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our main website. ClarkDeals.com is where you find the latest, greatest bargains that we think are worth it for you to look at and maybe save money on. So when you buy auto insurance, it is common that you're looking to shave every dollar you can from that premium. And so a lot of people buying auto insurance will ignore one of the most important things for you to have as part of it. It's called, uh, although the name may vary by state, the generic name for it is uninsured motorist coverage. And what it's for is for two different circumstances that could be very, very vital for you in an accident. One is if you were hit by someone who does not have insurance, the uninsured motorist coverage steps in to protect you, especially if someone in your vehicle has been injured. And so it is a protection that's vital because even though industry stats show that the number of people who are riding around without vehicle insurance is somewhere around 15%, it seems that when you get hit, it's always 100%. (laughs) No, but anyway, it's a problem. And you're left exposed. Do you know in the worst circumstances, this is crazy, but in many states, if you are riding around, you get hit by somebody, it's their fault, they don't have insurance, a passenger in your vehicle is injured, they end up having to sue you for their medical bills? That's bizarre, right? But that's the crazy quilt system with auto insurance in most states. So having uninsured motorist coverage, you think of it as primarily for that scenario I just painted. But it's actually much more common that someone may have liability coverage who hits you, but they only have what a state would have as its minimum requirement, which in most states, the minimum requirement is not enough to deal with even a minor injury that somebody might have. So states have purposely kept these required minimums extremely low to try to make auto insurance premiums more affordable so that more people will buy coverage instead of saying it's too expensive and they're not going to buy it. But then in turn, the insurance does not cover nearly enough. And if anybody has any meaningful injury, you'll blow through that state minimum that driver who hit you has in probably three hours in a hospital. So that's why, again, buying uninsured motorist coverage is really important. A lot of agents, in order to try to explain why you should have it more in a more clear way, use a different term. They call it underinsured motorist coverage. And just explain it that way is why you should have it. So that's why I'm such a big fan of it, because we cannot control once we're on the roads 
who's going to decide they want to meet us in an unfriendly way with their vehicle? Mindy's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Mindy. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you, Mindy. You have a question for me as an entrepreneur. What kind of business do you engage in as an entrepreneur? Uh, I do inspections and evaluations for businesses. Well, great. So um, I am just switching to that full time. So I'm looking to get my self-employed retirement plan set up. And I always hear you recommend the SEP IRA. But the Vanguard rep I spoke to suggested their individual 401k over that. Yeah, the solo solo or self-employed 401k. Yes. Uh huh. I I love the solo or self-employed 401k. Uh, it has oh, more paperwork involved with it, and mm-hmm. Vanguard will handle the lion's share of that paperwork, but there's more involved. So I usually talk about the SEP to try to get somebody going because the SEP requires about 90 seconds of paperwork one time, and then you're, you have a very simple program to save for retirement, but you have much more flexibility as a one-person company with the self-employed or solo 401k. Well, great. Um, And how much can I put into that then? So um, the rules for the SEP allow a contribution of, I think it's around 55,000 a year is the max. But the self-employed 401k works more like a uh, traditional 401k and you can put in up to $19,000 in it. The Vanguard person, I thought she was saying like a percentage of my income in addition to the 19000 So okay, you yeah. can defer up to 100% of your earned income up to the annual contribution limit. So it's 19000 or 25000 if you're over age 50. But you can also do another contribution that is 25% of what you earn. And there are, the rules go on and on for this, but the okay. amount of money cannot exceed 56000 Does that sound right? Uh, sure. <laughs> oh, so they didn't give you that amount? No, they told me to consult with a tax professional. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, so you called me? <laughs> well, I wanted to get your I, opinion on which plan to choose first, I, and I am okay. going to meet with a financial advisor about doing my rollovers and everything. So I'm reading right now on the IRS website, and I'm reading mm-hmm. from it, and it has a section in it, contribution limits and a one-participant 401k plan, and that is mm-hmm. what you would be. And so okay. let's see what the IRS says. Yep, so the IRS says... 19 grand, unless you're uh, 50 or over, in which case it can be 25 grand. And then there is this second contribution you can do for self employed. And then they have a formula that lays out giving examples on what you're allowed to contribute and how much it can be as a self employed 401k. Okay, great. Thank and, you so much. And so if you go to irs.gov and mm-hmm. do in the search box one participant 401k plans, 
they'll mm-hmm. show you the different examples about what the maximum is you can actually pop into this. That would be very helpful. And when you go to see, you said you're going to go see a financial advisor, are you going to see a fee-only person or are you... Yes, I found him through the Garrett Planning Network that you recommended. Perfect. All right. Well, you have things all buttoned up. If I could have given you a more succinct answer on the solo 401k... Oh, you've been very helpful. Thank you. Have a great day and good luck with your business. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Tate's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Tate. Hello, Clark. Pleasure to talk to you and just want to give you a shout out. Um, Another caller had commented about how polite you are. And I must say, um, I didn't actually recognize it, but now that I'm paying attention, I think I could learn a few things. (laughs) Well, you know, I'll tell you, it's partially a reaction to the way we treat each other today and how revolting I find that to be, how in the public sector, the political world, how nasty mean we are to our fellow Americans and how distrustful we become of our fellow Americans. And so I've made an extra emphasis to be about being a safe zone where we can all just be kind to each other. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and uh, hopefully it's it's contagious. I know it's uh, been a little bit contagious to me, so thank you for uh, doing all that you do, including helping me save some money as well. Well, thank you. So shall I, shall I ask my question? Yes, please. So, Clark, I have uh, five children, four of them uh, are either in college or finished college, and they all have college debt. Um, The ones that have finished, and and fortunately, they're all federal loans. So the ones that have finished are a little bit panicky, um, repaying, and um, I've helped them with the payments being commensurate with what they're making and the like, but some of them are still panicking to the extent that they're not sure when they're going to be able to pay off these monstrous loans that they have. And so how much do your kids the, have each? Well, it probably varies between about 60,000 and 45,000. And some of them are still uh, accruing. <laughs> right, well, you tell uh, them that they can rest easy because we have people call in who have hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. So it can always be worse. <laughs> I'm not sure that is, uh, is much comforting, but what has, I think, been somewhat comforting <laughs> is telling them what, what um, you've been talking about, and I've done a little research on uh, the student loans, is certain ones, and I know you've been talking about being very rigorous about those ones that uh, can be uh, just go for a 10-year period if they're in certain professions. Exactly. And so I, if they go into a public service protection, pr- profession, work for a nonprofit, uh, one that's a charitable organization, that kind of thing, um, they work for various levels of government, then they are eligible for the 10-year loan forgiveness And what's really cool about that, not only is the remaining balance of the loan forgiven, but there's no tax charge on the forgiven amount. And so the problem with it is that even people in good faith have paid for 10 years 
have been rejected for the loan forgiveness because the rules are so specific that just making your 120 payments does not relieve you from the loans. You've got to do a whole series of check marks exactly right. So we just recently put up a brand new guide on Clark.com for public service workers to show all the steps you have to go through to qualify for the payments being considered against the 120 so that you get the full loan forgiveness. And for the children that I have that don't have that, there's uh, the 20-year. Right. Revised pay as you earn. Right. And so the question is, is some of them that are making those lesser payments are, you know, they're accruing interest and at the same time. So uh, the question I had was whether that interest that's that's growing on that principle is forgiven or is it just the principal amount? Yeah. So the whole thing would be forgiven because it's known as uh, taking your student loan negative AM, where the loan balance is rising over time potentially under revised pay as you earn, which is based on a formula that makes sure you can live your full life without having the student loans crowd everything out of your life. And so the formula is very favorable to be able to reduce the amount you pay every month, but the loan balance will grow. But under revised pay as you earn at 20 years, the loan balance, everything you owe is forgiven, including the interest. But... Everything forgiven for it in that circumstance is taxable. So the public uh, service loan forgiveness, the loan forgiveness is tax-free. The regular loan forgiveness program, the loan forgiveness is taxable. Still very worth it, but there will be tax due on it. Okay. Okay. So that's good to know. I can, I can pass that on to them. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm not able to find a financial advisor through Garrett that's not within 60 miles, the Garrett Planning Network yeah. that you've talked about. Right. So what would an alternative to that be, uh, trying to find um Have you gone advisor? to NAPFA, N-A-P-F-A? No, I have not. So the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, NAPFA.org? That would be the that may provide you with a wider list of people, and some will do hourly advice. Others will only do an ongoing relationship, so you may have to call around. But that would be the alternative for fiduciary-based advice, where they only put your interests first. It's time for Clark.com/ask. That's where you post a question for me. On Clark.com, producer Joel asks it for you. All right, Clark, I'm asking for Priscilla. She says, why don't you mention Ting as a less expensive cell phone plan? We are very satisfied with their service, and we save over $100 a month from when we were with Verizon. That is fantastic. Now, Ting uses a virtually unique business model for cell phone service, and it is designed where you build your own menu. So what you do is you pick the number of lines you have and then you pay just a breathing rate for each line. And then you pick how many minutes you're going to talk per month. And you it's a scale and you just pick what you think you're going to use from a, a ton of minutes to almost none. 
then text how many you're going to pick, and then how much data you're going to use. So the average person who is a very low-volume cell phone user will have a cell phone bill of $15 a month. And for a family, obviously, you get, uh, you get a good deal if you have very low-volume users. And so that, this is for a particular kind of market. On the other hand, if you talk a decent amount, you use a lot of data, go look at our guide on Clark.com to a variety of companies that way undercut the big four. I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. That's our goal. That's what we do. But there are times that that promise, you feel, I fail to deliver. And that's important to me because the whole purpose of what we do here is to serve each other, to help each other. And this is different than a normal talk show where the host is just stating opinions and many times inflaming people. So we're just here to help. And if you feel that I'm hurting instead of helping, I'm giving what you think is bad advice, bad information, incomplete, I want to know that. And that's why we have Clark.com slash Clark Stinks, where you can post where you feel I didn't deliver. And others can read that, they can comment on it, they can agree, they can disagree. Once a week, our producer Krista goes through your posts and shares Clark Stinks with you on the air. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. All right. Dear Smelly Man, and then Ooh, just kidding. I like that. So Amika was great at first. Then my rates increased drastically. And to top it off, they do not offer the refund check for Floridians. Or is it dev- dividend? Not sure, because I didn't get it. I was told the insurance here is too expensive. Therefore, no more Amika. Much love, Clark. Glamorous Glennis. Glamorous Glennis. So... It's great to live in Florida, but it's certainly not glamorous to do anything in the insurance market because insurers are terrified of the potential catastrophic losses in Florida from rising sea levels and increasing storm activity. So most of them have hightailed it out. Those who've remained have cordoned off Florida into its own penalty box. Amica doesn't give the normal dividend to its owners. You're an owner of it. You're saying bye-bye to. They don't give the dividends to Florida because they need every dollar available in the event there is a catastrophic storm. And it is a brutal problem to insure property in the state of Florida because the level of risk is unimaginable and In the insurance business, they like to know actuarially what are the odds, what would be the losses. But with Florida at sea level pretty much and the huge number of millions of people with very expensive properties living at or near the water, the losses are not measurable and that's why it's such a mess to try to buy and keep homeowners insurance in the state of Florida. 
Hi, Clark. As a 30-year-plus IBMer and the fact that I've been a super long-time listener of you, I took great offense to your recent proclamations about IBM regarding IBM's secrecy in developing new facial recognition databases that would deprive our nation's citizens of their privacy and at the same time give them little choice, unless they're aware of it, that they could remove their data from said databases. My beef, IBM has so many different entities, so when you blanket a single picture across this entire 350,000-plus employee workforce, you make all of us look bad. That can mean loss of jobs, loss of market share, loss of Americans being able to have the dream that you already have so much, maybe too much of. I'm writing, if I'm writing, you can be sure that many others have taken much more offense than I ever have. Be careful with your words and your power. And yes, you have power. If you don't know how to use it, then give it to someone else. Mark. Mark, I am sorry that I offended you, and I don't know how I would explain that any other way other than to say, like, let's say the stuff going on with the 737 MAX right now. Should I say that's from the commercial aircraft division of Boeing? I mean, it gets hard when I'm talking about something that is a function of a particular corporation. I I just don't know how I would explain that. I should tell you, Mark, also, I am a former IBMer. I was only a two-year employee, and I can't believe you said you were from IBM and didn't give your employee number, as we all had that drilled into our heads. But again, I'm sorry about causing offense to you. Clark had a caller from Alaska asking if she could keep, should keep the receipts for her house for tax purposes. Clark was entirely focused on whether the house's value is above the personal home exclusion. Clark, that is horrible, stinky, P.U. You forgot about two things. One, what happens if they decide to turn it into a rental property where the personal property exemption does not apply and the receipts will save them a load in capital gains taxes? Two, what the government giveth, they taketh back. What if Congress decides to eliminate the personal home capital gains exemption and or lowers it? Also, why didn't Clark suggest that the caller scan all the receipts in the store and put them on her home computer and on the cloud? Then she wouldn't have to need to keep all the papers. Clark, I really love the work you do, but maybe before jumping in with your response, you should take a few seconds to think about the different angles and possibilities for a more thought-out answer. Mordecai. Mordecai, you nailed it perfectly. You are completely right. It was funny. is You were stating your first thing about somebody converting something into an investment property. I was like, oh, yeah, I should have mentioned that. And so... <laughs> Those are great suggestions. Yes, it's possible Congress would change the law again, and you're going to wish you had those receipts. And then the idea of scanning them is so simple now with an Android or iPhone. You can use one of the programs that's a scan receipt program and store those, print them out, uh, store them at home, on your home computer, in the cloud, Everything you suggested is completely right. And that's why we do Clark Stinks, is there are times I get too narrowly focused, just as I did on that particular call. Clark, you're good with numbers, so why don't you think about this? You advocated for car insurance charged by mileage, but only consider this superficially. Most accidents occur within five miles of the home. 
I'm also, I'm sure that if you were to calculate accidents per mile in the high mileage drivers, they would be less than low mileage users. It's easy to realize the experienced drivers are less likely to cause accidents, especially in the elements such as Minnesota winters. Insurance is billed for cost sharing because we all share the load. So statistically, and I hear every point you made, statistically, the more miles someone's on the road, the higher the probability they're going to be in an accident. And mathematically, you're right that most accidents happen within a short distance of your home. You said five miles. I've heard 20. But if you think about people's uh, typical driving, it's generally more than half the time is going to start from their home. And they're going to go, again, start. It's going to start from their home. And so the greatest probability is going to be in that initial distance from their home. So you are probably right that people that drive massive numbers of miles over the course of a year have less of a risk of an accident per mile than people who drive a more moderate amount of miles. I don't know there's any perfect systems for establishing rates for insurance. The auto insurers believe that the most sophisticated and refined methods are those that actually track your driving, how you actually perform behind the wheel as being the key criteria to be able to calculate risk properly. Clark, you said that free trials are a scam and that anything that forces you to put your credit card number in is a scam. Not true. You are misinforming people. What people don't realize is that you have to cancel the free trial before it ends. If they don't, then yes, they get charged for the next month's full retail rate. I agree that it's unfortunate for us to have to put in our credit card number just to get the free trial. But that said, all you have to do is cancel it. And boom, you're golden. I feel you misinform people and you should let them know that yes, they won't be charged if they cancel. Lazy people get hurt by the free trial offerings because they don't know what to do. Your listeners, however, are smart. They would in all likely cancel it before it expires. They deserve to know the truth. Thanks for all your help, Clark. The poster's name is Clark, too? No, I read that wrong. Thanks for all your help, Clark. (laughs) Signed anonymous, really. There's no signature. Okay, anonymous. (laughs) That was funny. Okay, so you obviously don't have the characteristic that so many of us as humans have, and that's that we're flakes. And so with busy lives things going on, losing track of time, a lot of people get lured in with free trials and because of the flakiness or busyness, don't cancel. So they end up being charged for it. They don't even notice sometimes for quite a while till they see a debit from their checking account or a post to a credit card. That's why the safest way to do a free trial offer is has been suggested by a lot of listeners is to get a stored value card or gift card with very little money on it, even as little as $5, and you use it as your card for all free trial offers, then the maximum risk you have is whatever money is on that stored value card. Maybe it's not you, Clark, but your minion who wrote the column on buying life insurance. Minion? (laughs) I'm the minion. They're all the leaders. They're all my boss. You're my boss. He proposed that parents buy lots of insurance to cover the expenses they'd pay if alive and working. That's good. 
What's bad is comments like, why buy life insurance for a three-year-old? Nobody depends on their income. Maybe no one depends on a toddler's income, but someone has to pay for a toddler's funeral. In a country where half of all families can't come up with $400 for a break job, where would those families find $8,000 to bury a child? We all know nothing's sure but death and taxes. We're generally forced to pay taxes a little at a time. We have a choice about paying for death, and paying for a funeral at one time can bankrupt a family or cause life-altering debt. It is so tragic when a young child loses his or her life, and you see these GoFundMes when families are trying to raise money for a funeral for a young child, and thank goodness in our modern system with the health care we have, it is... Uh, so rare where even you go back 100 years ago, the loss of a child was common. And today it's a whole different circumstance. So you bring up a valid point that depending on which survey you believe, somewhere between 40 and 55% of people can't handle a single financial setback or emergency. Using life insurance for that purpose was known traditionally, particularly in the Midwest and the South, as burial insurance, is an expensive way to solve a very obscure and thankfully rare circumstance. What's better is for someone to be a member of their local funeral or memorial society where the cost of a funeral, instead of being $8,000, will likely be less than $2,000. And it doesn't eliminate the fact that they don't have that money saved, but it greatly reduces that burden. And I so much prefer it to the idea of buying life insurance on a child. You insure people who generate income, not people who, as much as we love our kids, cost money to raise. All right, let's shift gears on this last one. Mr. Howard. Apologies, but it was needed for emphasis. During your podcast, you talk about travel insurance and how Southwest doesn't have cancellation fees. That's correct. However, I was flying the day before a cruise to Orlando and my flight was canceled. They were unable to get me out of my destination airport until the following day and not in time to make my cruise. I had found a flight out of a nearby airport, but Southwest wanted to charge me $300 plus as the new fare was more expensive. Thankfully, the manager waived the additional cost, but it was a challenge as I had to escalate it through to the manager, and I didn't get any compensation for having to drive three hours to the new airport. As always, your advice is amazing. Dave from Dayton. Dave, thank you. And I don't know if you went to Columbus, Indianapolis, He was flying to Columbus, and he went to Indianapolis. Okay. So I knew where all the airports were that Southwest serves. So that was an employee fail at Southwest, and that situation... They should have bent over backwards to accommodate you, their cancellation of a flight, their failure to deliver service, and then compounding it by trying to charge you additional money. And thank goodness, the manager you dealt with did what was the right thing that the frontline employee should have done in the first place. So uh, I'm sorry you had that experience. I'm glad you got it done by advocating for yourself. And you didn't tell me if your cruise was any good. If you have something you want to share with me, you want to complete an answer from me, you want to correct something you've heard me say, please go to Clark.com slash Clark Stinks. Grant is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Grant. Hey. 
How are you? I'm good. So my son's name, Grant, was he named after you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a rare name. So we gave him a name that was um, three American presidents. His name's Grant Harrison Howard. Oh, there so you go. he's got the parts of three different presidents' names because we think he's like a. At birth, we just had this sense he was going to be a presidential kind of kid. Well, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, what's I, going on with you? I have a um, retirement account. They've been trying to push a uh, annuity on me. In a retirement account? It's a IRA. Yeah, and are you in retirement right now or no? No, no, no. I'm I'm turning sixty uh, next month, and um, you know they're like. those bombs bursting in air and into your eardrums yes i do okay you never 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 not ever put an annuity which is a product designed to have a tax advantaged wrapper inside an ira because you're all you're paying in an annuity massive massive commissions and insurance company costs uh-huh. that you would never want to take on. Now, you must be with a full commission stockbroker. No discount stockbroker would ever make a recommendation like that because that's an extremely inappropriate choice inside an IRA when you're still accumulating money. Right. So let's look on the charitable side. Either the individual who's advising you is not knowledgeable enough or they're not really looking out for you. So that is advice that I would not take from him. And I'd be very careful with anything recommended for you to go into if somebody has advised you to do something like this, to be very wary about investment recommendations you might get from this individual. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.